Hello everyone, I hope you're all doing well. I honestly can't believe that we're already at 80 episodes of Creepscast. Thank you all so much for your continued support and for listening to every episode. So, let's get into it, as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I just became a cop in Louisiana. There are things in the bayou. Written by 02321 I recently transferred to a Louisiana Police Department. I don't wish to share the name of the city where I work in because this tale cannot get back to my boss. I'm certain she would think that I wasn't all there if she heard what I saw in the bayou while looking for a body. The new city was a bit of a culture shock and the humid weather near did me in for the first few months. Before the bayou case had started, I met an odd person while on my lunch break that gave me hints of how strange this new city really was. There is a fish shack nearby my office. It was mostly outdoor table space to eat, but I normally would bring my lunch back to eat at my desk. I hated sitting outside in the sun trying to enjoy a meal. While I was walking past the seating area, I noticed something that made me pause. A boy, barely a teen, was sulking around the trash can. And I mean sulking. The fish shack was pretty much a fast food place, and people would toss away their trash outside at the end of the meal. The boy watched as a couple got up and tossed a styrofoam container away, with a few fries and a small piece of fried fish inside. He waited until they took a few steps away until he quickly pulled the container out. And before he could eat the scraps, I walked over to him. Hey, don't eat that. I told him and he was so startled that he dropped the container. I didn't mean to scare him or sound so harsh. Handing him my lunch, I bent down to pick up the garbage and I threw it away again. Here, eat mine if you're hungry. You really shouldn't eat trash. You could get sick. He looked up at, looking confused if this was the first nice thing that anyone had ever done for him. I looked him over for some signs of abuse and I wondered if I could get his name and then I could look into his situation. Despite the heat, he was wearing a sweater three sizes too big. The deep v-neck made the shirt slip off his narrow shoulder. His hair was sandy color and messily cut at his shoulders. Freckles spotted his nose and his shoulders. He wasn't dirty and I didn't see any bruises, so that was a good sign. Necklaces of fishing line hung from his neck, and I didn't know if he had picked up some trash to wear or if this was a new fashionable trend. Are you sure that I can have this? He asked in a small voice, looking around as if he was committing a crime. Of course. What's your name? I'm Officer Anthony Turner. I flashed my badge, hoping that it made him feel safe talking with me. He slowly took out a fry and ate it, debating on if he wanted to talk. Catfish, he said finally. The one word confused me. I did order fried catfish with a side of fries, but it took me a few seconds to clue in that he didn't mean my lunch. Is that your legal name? I said and he nodded. I have heard worse names since I had arrived in the city. Maybe his father was really into fishing. Was his sibling named Crawdad or something? 
Smiling at my own joke, I gestured for him to sit down at the wooden table to talk with me for a while. Catfish didn't look as if he was starving, but he must have had a good reason for trying to eat from the trash. So, Catfish, what's up with trying to eat table scraps? I don't mean to pry into your private life, but seeing something like that makes me a bit worried. He listened as he slowly started to eat, and then stuffed his face full of fries to the point that he nearly choked. I gladly handed over my can of iced tea. It appeared that whoever had raised this kid had dropped the ball somewhere. I've wanted to try some food here for, for ages. It smells great, but I don't have any money. Oh, wait, I've found a few coins here and there. They're not on me, so I don't know how much they're worth. I guess I got desperate. He explained after drinking nearly the whole can of iced tea in one gulp. Uh, thank you for giving me this. It's a nice treat and I'll pay you back one way or another. He gave me a wide smile that looked a bit too long for his face. Normally large mouths look unsettling, but his made him similar to a happy frog. Catfish was a good kid at least. It made me worry that someone may take advantage of him and was glad that I was the one who had spotted him first. I give him a wave of the offer to pay me back for lunch. Nah, it's fine. I don't mind buying you a meal. But uh, can I ask if you're doing alright? Are you eating enough at home? And it's a Tuesday, isn't it? Shouldn't you be in school? I sounded like a worried parent. These questions would be enough to scare anyone off, but he listened while eating a bit more carefully this time. The first bite of the fried catfish made him so happy that he tapped his feet on the ground, causing his flip-flops to make a slapping sound for a few seconds. After he could focus, he went into answering my questions. I'm eating just fine. I can catch enough in the bayou to stay well-fed for most days. I was taking care of someone who couldn't be alone, so I couldn't go to school. I don't have plans on moving, so I don't really need schooling. The bayou provides me with everything that I need, aside from the rare treat like this meal. He was smiling again, but I crossed my arms, thinking it over. He appeared happy, and I should drop the whole thing. I felt as if he was a bit too young to be on his own. I've heard about people living in the bayou before, but I always assumed they were the old hermit type. As long as he was healthy, it was none of my business, no matter how I felt about it. Uh, do you have a cell phone or a computer at home? I asked as he shook his head. Well, how about you meet me here every Tuesday and uh, I'll buy you lunch? His face lit up. Quickly, he forced on his excitement, shaking his head, feeling guilty at accepting such an offer. It is a kind offer, but it's hard for me to accept something for free, he admitted. You can catch things in the bayou, right? My partner makes killer crawdads, but never have time to catch fresh ones. How about you bring a few over and we can do a trade? I wasn't even finished speaking when a hand shot out for us to seal the deal. I let out a laugh and I shook his small hand. Catfish now didn't hide how happy he was to try different things on the menu without needing to dig around in the trash can. My lunch break was about up and I should be back at the office a few minutes ago. I double-checked to make sure that Catfish was really doing alright and we made a promise to meet next week. I wanted to get his last name, but I didn't push for it. Next time we spoke, I would ask him. 
One Tuesday rolled around, I met him at the fish shack as promised. I ordered whatever he wanted to try. This time it was a fish burger with extra everything on top. I may have been spoiling him a little bit. The only problem came when he upheld his end of the bargain and brought a tub of live crawdads. The tub was sealed with air holes on the lid. I heard them angrily scuttling around and didn't expect them to be still alive and out for revenge. I didn't have a plan on how to deal with them at the office, but I didn't bring it up to Catfish as he happily ate his lunch. We parted ways and I took the tub back to the office. My partner was very confused as to why I gave him a bunch of live crawdads in the middle of a workday. He lived close by though, so he swung by his place to hand them over to his wife to deal with. I didn't have the heart to tell him more would be coming every Tuesday. For a few weeks, I spent meeting up with a boy I barely knew anything about. He refused to give me a last name saying that he had forgotten it. I didn't pressure him into telling me anything that he didn't want to. The only facts that I knew about him is that he lived off the land, his parents were long gone, and he was very skilled at catching crawdads to my partner's dismay. Our Tuesdays would have continued on like that if a big case didn't break. A girl went missing and that her body was found in the bayou two days later. And then another poor girl and then another but her body wasn't recovered. And because of the case, I became too busy to meet Catfish at lunch. He fully understood and told me that he was rooting for me to find the killer. I wasn't a detective and only had a very small part of the case, but still wanted to do my best to help. I only chased down leads that the detectives didn't have time for or took over different office tasks to free up other manpower. The constant overtime lasted for three months until a huge break had happened. A suspect was identified. From what I heard, he tried taking a girl on her way home from school. What he didn't know was that the girl had taken mixed martial arts than she was a child. A high school student took him by surprise and kicked the crap out of him. No other way to put it. But sadly, he got back into his car and drove off but left behind enough blood to get a name from previous assault charges. This man was careful enough not to leave any DNA behind on the bodies and messed up by picking the wrong victim. We didn't know for certain that it was the same guy, but we felt the odds were pretty good as it was. Unfortunately, the suspect was not at home when a few officers did a house call. A boat was registered in his name. His car parked at the docks with fresh blood left behind but his boat nowhere to be seen. From witness statements, he had gone into the bayou and yet to come back to the dock. So, we had an idea of who would kill those girls and when in the bayou. Only two bodies were recovered and each were found in popular catfishing areas. We had a murderer and one more body to find. I volunteered to be a part of the search party even though I had never been in the bayou before and well, never been a part of a search party either. I was paired up with someone who did have experience in both. The department only cared about having manpower out looking and didn't care if I didn't know what I was doing. Before going out with the search party, I listened to some advice and bought some high rubber boots. They turned out not to be tall enough though, but at least they kept my feet somewhat dry. Going out into the swamp, chasing down a killer was nerve-wracking. I listened to the briefing very carefully. Everyone was paired off and we double-checked our equipment. 
My new partner was impressed that I had brought along spare batteries for the radio, but shook his head when I had forgotten the bug spray. We shared some after introducing ourselves to each other, though. I'm Trevor Kelsey to stay close and watch out for gators, he said, and he wasn't joking about the gators. I was extra nervous from those words. I took my time shaking his hand, putting off going into the swamp. I finally released Kelsey's hand so I could follow him to the boat that would take us to our search area. And the bug spray didn't do too much. My arms itched and my clothing was damp from the humidity. And the search was already miserable and we had barely gotten started. And keeping all of my complaints silent, we walked along in the swamp, my feet sinking in every step. Our team was looking for the last missing girl. It'd be nice if we could find and catch the culprit, but everybody thought that he was long gone, or hiding somewhere nicer than the swamp. Since the other bodies were found in fishing areas, the rest needed to be checked over. Some places could only be reached by boat, but sometimes you could walk part of the way depending on the water level. I scratched my arms, convinced the bugs were biting away at me. Sweat dripped from my nose as Kelsey kept his pace slow so his novice partner could keep up. Hey, sorry I'm slow. I apologized after we needed to stop because my foot was stuck. It took me a minute to get her free and to carry on. And Kelsey shook his head, not looking upset for having me along. Hey, everybody has a first time doing something. We had odd numbers, so unless you came along, I would either be alone or I would set this one out. At least you're willing to slog through all this. I've been with guys who have had 10 years of searching the bayou under their belt and they cry about every trap. I let out a short laugh feeling better that I wasn't the worst partner that he had been stuck with. As we walked, I kept my eyes and ears focused, trying to see any sign of human life. The bayou was almost like an alien planet for someone like myself. The air was heavier than I had ever felt before. Chirping sounds off in the distance rattled my nerves and every ripple of the water made me tense up, expecting a gator to come at us any second. I didn't understand how anyone could live here. Did catfish really stay in the bayou, or was this place a small shack just on the edge of it? I mean, the place was beautiful and yet it felt dangerous too. And Kelsey noticed how nervous I was and started up a conversation. I'm scared something's gonna jump out and get ya, he asked in a joking tone. Well, actually, yes, I admitted with no shame. He laughed at me, shaking his head. If a small kid like my lunch friend could live out here, it couldn't be all that dangerous, right? I really wanted that to be the case, as my foot yet again got caught. I heard a sound off in the distance before Kelsey started speaking. My head had turned away from him, and I half-listened, trying to find the source of the other noise. I don't worry about it. The key thing is to stay. I was looking off into the swamp through the mossy trees when Kelsey suddenly stopped talking. When I turned to ask him what was wrong, I felt my heart nearly stop. The man that was only a few steps away a second ago was gone. Not even any ripples on the water remained it. But that didn't make any sense. He was right in front and didn't have any time to walk away. There weren't even any trees wide enough to hide behind, 
Wanting to believe this was a prank on the new guy, I stayed in the same spot, scanning the trees. Kelsey, this isn't funny. Can you come out so we can do our job? I shouted off into the bayou, trying to keep my voice even. Only the sounds of the swamp answered back. I felt sweat clinging to my back, but this time not from the heat. I called his name on again, trying not to freak out. A mixture of fear and a simmering rage spilled into my stomach. Grabbing my radio, I started to call on the fact that I had lost my partner. Kelsey may get an earful about this dumb prank, but he deserved it. The radio crackled and then it died. Frantically replacing the batteries gave the same result. Pulling out my phone, I felt my hand start to tremble when it didn't even turn on. I charged it right before we had left. It should be a 90% at least, and yet it was dead. Suddenly, I felt like the final person in a horror movie. Shaking my head and in an attempt to collect myself, I thought of what to do next. A blur of motion in the distance caught my eye. Something dark moved between some trees and it looked human. Hey, Kelsey. I called out, full well knowing that it couldn't be him. It was a bad idea, but I started after the figure that was now hidden behind the twisted trees. I only got a few steps when I heard a splash behind it and I turned to see another figure dart behind a different tree. I had almost missed it. This wasn't good. Whoever was messing with me, there was more than one of them. My hand went to my holster at my side. I've drawn my weapon a handful of times and only shot at a person once before. Whatever was happening, I didn't like it in the slightest. I'm with the police. We're on official business here looking for a body, so please do not get in the way of an investigation. I called out, unsure of what else to say. A chattering sound came. It sounded almost like laughter. I was not going to take the friendly approach any longer. Weapon drawn, I scanned the trees looking for more of those dark figures as that horrible sound echoed around. Air caught on my lungs when the sound stopped and I saw the cause. A massive shadow started to swim through the water in my direction. I scrambled, trying to find solid ground which was rare in that swamp. The water was only about ankle deep in spots. Something large enough to cast such a shadow, it should be too big to swim in such shallow water. Taking my eyes off the dark shape, I looked up trying to see if what I was seeing was a shadow of a plane or a really weird cloud. Nothing but the treetops and the clear blue sky. A splashing sound jerked my attention back down, convinced that an alligator finally decided that I was a tasty snack. A weapon raised, I almost fired. What I saw, it made me lower my handgun, and all the tension had faded from my shoulders. I was surprised, but I didn't think of him as a threat. Catfish, what the heck are you doing here? I demanded in a stressed voice. The boy that I had became friends with was coming out of the swamp, water dripping from his loose clothing. How did he sneak up on me and why did it look like he was coming out of a much deeper part of the water when it was so shallow? You really shouldn't be on this side. 
What are you doing here? He said, tossing my question back at me. My job. I know you live in the bayou, but never mind. Have you seen my partner? He was just here. Looking around, I almost expected to see Kelsey again, or at least those figures off in the distance. I was so strung out that I didn't even register what Catfish first said. He was twisting the edge of his sweater, trying to get some of it dry. A friendly face was nice, even if I didn't know what was going on. No, I haven't seen any human besides yourself lately. I heard your voice and came over, really not expecting to see you here. I guess you're after the other man that came through a little while ago, who dropped the dead girl off. Not sure where the girl is, though. Staring at the boy, my mouth nearly dropped open. Catfish might know where the suspect was. He was a dangerous man and really hoped he didn't see the boy and was coming after the only witness. And what did he mean by the only human? My new kids his age could be a bit weird, thinking that they were vampires and such, but catfish it didn't seem like the type. Some weird stuff has been going on, please don't add to it. Did the other man see you? Do you think that we're safe? Oh, he didn't see me, he's dead. The others living in the bayou got him. I suppose it's your job to get proof of his death. Let's do that, and I'll guide you out of here. I do owe you after all. So much for not adding to the weirdness. Catfish was far too calm telling me about a man's death. That fact startled me more than anything else that he had hinted at. The boys started to walk easily through the swamp, leaving me to helplessly follow slowly after him. What do you mean by others? Who killed him? No matter how hard I tried, I was unable to catch up to the boy. He walked as if the swamp was a normal ground. I kept getting stuck and the heat wasn't helping. Catfish didn't look as if he wanted to answer my very important question. With a shrug, he nodded his head off towards the trees. You might have seen glimpses of them. You know, others. I don't talk to them much, so I don't know what they are. He said with another shrug. What the heck was going on? I was out here trying to find a missing girl to bring some sort of closure to her family, so that they could bury her. And now I was following behind a boy that I thought I knew. He was implying there were things besides bugs and gators in this place. All of it had to be a prank. For my own sanity, it needed to be one. Catfish, you've been talking about weird stuff since I saw you. What are you getting at? What did I stumble into? He stopped walking to look over his shoulder. Our eyes met and I noticed how dark and deep they appeared. For a moment, those eyes were not one of a child, but of something much older. When he turned, a smile was on his face and the expression that made him look like a happy little frog made me relax. Whatever was going on, someone was on my side. Let's just get proof of that man's body for now. After you're in a safe spot, I'll explain things a little more. That was acceptable. If he did start explaining what was going on, I doubted that I would understand it or even want to hear it. That moment, I just wanted to focus on doing my job. The weird stuff could wait. At least I wanted the weird stuff to wait. 
As I struggled through the water and over his spongy ground, the sky started to grow darker, and that made us both nervous. It should still be only noon and there was no rain in the forecast. The bayou was bad enough. Walking through it in the rain would be a nightmare. It felt like an hour of trudging along and sweating until Catfish had finally stopped. He pointed a few feet in front to a bundle of clothing. At first, I didn't notice those rags still had a human inside. The smell was awful. Pulling my shirt over my nose, I walked towards it, Catfish staying behind. He shouldn't see a terrible sight like this. Normally, insects would make a meal out of a body out in the open like this, but none touched it. The body was face down, meaning that I needed to flip it over to try and confirm the man's identity. I didn't want to contaminate the scene any more than I had already did. Pulling out my phone, I checked up, begging it to turn on, so I could take photos and document the position of the body. A miracle happened and it flickered to life. Wasting no time, I tried calling my boss, and then 911, but nothing went through. At least I could take the photos that I wanted. When I thought that I got enough photos, I finally forced myself to grab a stick to roll the body over. My stomach tightened and I nearly lost my light launch as the body bobbed in the shallow water. He wasn't dead for very long, I could tell that much. Right away, I knew this was our suspect, but I wasn't able to snap a photo of his face right off the bat. I lost my lunch when my eyes landed on his torn open and empty torso. A wild animal had gotten to him first, the water washing away and most of the blood leaving the body. In training, I had seen things like it, but never was he one to be the first to discover one. As I was recovering, a sound came from my hip that nearly made me jump out of my skin. My radio crackled to life. It was only static, but it gave some hope of getting someone over here to help. Because I was so focused on the radio, I wasn't paying any attention to Catfish suddenly moving closer. Come in, this is. Only a few words left my lips as the soggy ground from under my feet was gone. My body sank like a brick in deep murky water. The foul-tasting water entering my mouth before I could hold my breath. Sinking down, the water became colder and I nearly screamed when something touched my ankle. It was a hand end at first. I assumed it was someone trying to help. Until more hands came clawing through the cold darkness, grabbing any part that they could. I wanted to scream and if I did, I would die. My lungs wouldn't hold for very long. A short while ago, I was with Kelsey and my only worries were of an alligator or a serial killer. But now the bayou reached out to take my life and there was nothing that I could do about it. My arms were pinned from the countless hands. I couldn't even try to struggle to the surface or grab my handgun as a blunt object to attack the cold hands. Regret flashed through my mind. The lungs about to burst, my brain went through everything anew, trying to find a way out of this impossible situation. Just as my time ran out, the hands let go to scatter back into the dark. Someone else took a hold to save a scared novice officer from nearly dying. Coughing and sputtering out of the grimy water, 
the ordeal left it impossible to see my savior for a few minutes. Yes, I was thankful to be alive but confused over what the heck had happened. Turner, you alright? What the heck, man? Kelsey's voice cut through the panic of nearly dying. He dragged me to better ground as I coughed up the rest of the water that I had nearly swallowed. Rubbing my eyes clear, I looked over the scene. He stood looking as panicked as I felt. My gear ruined, but he was already on a working radio calling for backup. What? I started, a voice too hoarse to speak. We were just walking along and you got pulled under. Did a gator, a Christ on a stick. When did that body get there? Kelsey's attention was directed towards the dead man floating near where he had saved me. Neither of us spoke until the other teams arrived, thinking that it was an alligator attack and not a body retrieval. The entire discovery was impossible to explain, so we both just went with whatever questions that were asked, giving the only answers that we could. My boot was missing and my pants were torn, so it was assumed an alligator did grab me to pull me under. The vague answers sounded as if I was in shock over nearly losing my leg and my life. The killer was found and his last victim was also recovered by a different, more experienced search team. After his body was found, enough evidence came to light proving that he was the killer and the case was closed. His official cause of death was an animal attack. The resolution felt a little bitter, however, that man was no longer able to harm another person. Waiting to the next Tuesday was agony. At first, I thought the strange events in meeting Catfish in the bayou was a false memory formed nearly drowning, but it felt too real to dismiss until I saw Catfish again, and I'd asked him some questions. He was late, and I didn't think he was going to show. For a while, I worried his entire existence was false. Sitting in the hot sun, sipping on an iced tea, I waited until my lunch break was nearly up. Finally, Catfish sat on the other side of the table, a kind smile on his face. I'm guessing you have questions, he started. A few, I don't really know where to start. I guess, are you human? Nope. The reply came with no hesitation. I'm just a catfish. Now that I was looking at him more, he did have fish traits that I was kicking myself mentally for not noticing before. His oversized sweater sleeves looking like fins. His messy hair poking out on both sides of his head. Almost like whiskers and his freckles these same kind of spots a catfish skin may have. His smile now looked more like a fish than a frog the more that I looked. He even worn fishing line and lures. I mean how obvious could he be? Just a catfish. I repeated looking the boy over her. Normally humans can't see me. You have really good eyesight and because you're interacting with me in my human form, others can see me as well. But the issue is your sight was too good. You accidentally got on the other side of the bayou where I live and the other things hunt. If I didn't drag you back to your side, then you would have been taken by the same ones that killed that man. I'm not the type to really stick my nose in business like that, but... You bought me food and I did all you want. Sitting back, his answers played through my mind. It explained why Catfish didn't bring any crawdads this time. We were even. 
I mean, heck, I owed him now. In a way, Catfish only gave a vague description of what happened and what he was, but it was good enough for me. I didn't want to know about supernatural things happening deep into the swamp, but if I stayed at the department, I may need to go back into the bayou again. Moving and finding a new job sounded like such a hassle when there was a better option. If I buy you lunches, would you be able to keep me from going out of your side of the bayou if I need to search it again for work? I asked, hopeful. Catfish made a show of humming of the idea. When these smells of the fish shack drifted over on the wind, he broke down, unable to keep up his act. With a sheepish smile, he gave a small nod. If you make it Tuesdays and Fridays, I can make sure that you don't slip up again. Reaching out my hand, we shook on it. My wallet may take a hit, but it was better than uprooting my life or dying in the swamp. And plus, Catfish was a nice kid. In the very least, he deserved a good meal twice a week. I was still adjusting to a move across the country and a new job. In the past few months, I'd made a habit of buying lunch for a boy named Catfish. Before I met him, I didn't believe in supernatural things, but after a trip into the bayou, I was forced to see that there was something beyond natural in the world. Somehow, that fact didn't shake my view on life. I carried on like normal. As long as I stayed away from those supernatural threats, I would be safe. At least, that's what I assumed. Two days a week, I spent my lunch break with Catfish, who was, well, a catfish. He appeared human, but I knew that he was something else. Maybe not just a fish, but something much more dangerous. Because I bought him food, we became friends. He promised to protect me if I did slip up and come across something unnatural threatening my life. He was such a powerful thing in a small body, I never needed to worry about losing a fight. Again, that's what I thought. On my lunch break, I was at our usual spot. Catfish hadn't shown up yet, and I was worried about it. He never missed out on getting free food. The only time that we didn't meet is if it was my job got in the way. As the minutes passed by, I grew more anxious about him. He didn't own a cell phone, and there was no way to contact him to see if he was alright. Just as it felt as if my nerves were going to get the better of me, a man stopped beside my table. At a glance, it was obvious that he knew Catfish, and he wasn't human. His hair was long and unkempt. Eyes so light that it looked as if they didn't have any color to them, and they stared me down. He was wrapped in a blanket. Torn and dirty and bare feet stuck out from under the sheet. He gave me a cold stare, face somewhat hidden behind his hair. Oddly enough, it felt as if I've seen him before, but I could not place his face. Catfish is in trouble. You need to save him. Follow me. Giving me no time to respond, he turned and started away. My stomach sank. Images of that kind boy flashed through my mind as I got up stumbling over my own feet in a rush to follow the man. I called into work saying that a family emergency came up and that I needed the rest of the day off. Since I have yet to miss a day, my boss let me call in on short notice. I kept asking these stranger questions about catfish, 
and what was going on, but he didn't respond. Instead, he paused, looking me over with a face that could freeze fire. Do you want a car? I nodded, and this time he followed me. It was only a short walk back to the office, and yet each second passed impossibly slowly. When we got to my car, he sat in the passenger seat again, not speaking much. Other than giving me direction, he refused to answer any important questions. We drove to a small dock with a rowboat at the end. He stood in the front of the boat facing away, keeping perfect balance as I swayed the small craft getting in. The moment both my feet were on the wood, the boat started to glide down the water on its own. After what happened the last time that I was in the bayou, I wasn't keen on entering it again. My stomach twisted in stress and fear. I wished the boat would go faster so I could find my small friend and hopefully get him out of trouble. I didn't understand what I could even do. I was human and I felt helpless against any supernatural threat. The boat steered through narrow waterways. The bayou around us, an amazing piece of nature full of creatures and life that I would never fully understand. It was still early in the afternoon and yet the light surrounding us looked golden as if the sun was setting. I spotted catfish before the boat even reached them. It needed to steer around so wet but saw the ground. The boy was on his back, covered by a dirty blanket on a soggy bank. I didn't wait for the boat. I jumped out, rushing towards him, finding it hard to move in the damp ground. My shoes soaked and pants wet up to the knees I pressed on frantically. When I did reach him, I collapsed next to the sleeping boy, thinking the worst. Cat, what happened to him? I demanded up at the man who had stopped besides us. Catfish was pale, his breathing weak and ragged. The blanket covering the frail boy stained by what I feared to be blood. The man looked almost emotionless, not affected by my outburst. He was attacked by a creature. They tore out an organ for who knows what reason. He's tough, but he can't hold on for more than a day or so, the man said in a low voice. He sounded angry, but it was easy to see that he was upset at itself for not protecting catfish. Lifting the boy into my lab, I shuddered over how cold he felt. I placed a hand on his damp forehead, feeling as if I was going to burst. The reasons that I had moved across the country came flooding back as seeing him like this. I forced them all down to focus on what I could do. We need to get him to a hospital. The man shook his head. If it was that simple, he would have already done it. For some reason, he brought me here. That was a hopeful sign. I would do anything to save this kind child. There's a creature that lives deep in the bayou. She can make something to heal him. However, she does not do exchanges with other supernatural things. I can bring you to her, he explained. Put him in the boat. We'll go right now. The man shook his head at what I said. I heard a noise from Catfish and I kept brushing his hair out of his face, trying to soothe him. No, he must stay here. The place that we're going is dangerous. You might not even make it. I cannot watch over him and you at the same time. 
I hated leaving Catfish behind while he was suffering. I understood why we needed to do so and I didn't have anyone that I could call to watch the boy for me. If I called my partner, he would rush Catfish off to a hospital right away. Don't. A small voice came from the boy in my arms. I was glad that he was strong enough to speak, but hearing his voice it broke my heart. I wanted to kill whatever did this to him. Instead of looking as if he was in pain, the boy smiled up at me. It wasn't his usual wide smile, and that made my chest tighten. Turner, it's fine. Don't risk your life for me. It's not fine. There's no way we're leaving you to die like this. He looked up with a strained expression. He knew that I wasn't going to back down, and the last thing he wanted was a friend to get hurt for his sake. The thought of somebody dying for him may hurt him more than having an organ ripped out. I'll protect him. I'm strong enough for that now. I do not need to rely on your strength, so this man should not die on your behalf. The man stood confident in our mission. Catfish didn't appear to share the same thoughts. He closed his eyes and let out a sigh knowing that he couldn't stop us. Please, just come back alive no matter what. I promised him that we would. Speaking drained Catfish of his strength and he fell asleep again. I gave him a few moments to rest before lifting him to place the boy under a tree, hoping that it was a better spot instead of his legs being in the water. The man silently watched as I promised to catfish again, that I would save him and I placed a kiss on the top of his head. I was facing an entire bayou of supernatural creatures far beyond my power and understanding. I barely knew anything about this area because... I had recently moved from a colder part of the country. This trip would truly be venturing into the unknown. I turned to face the mystery man, ready to press forward, and not wanting to waste any more time. He gave me a nod and led me back to the boat. I could do nothing but sit as we started to go further and deeper into the bayou and into a swamp. As we drifted along, it got darker and darker. The man took a thick stick from the bottom of the boat, and he wrapped some fabric around the end to make a torch. After he lit it, he stood at the front of the boat again, the fire lighting our way. Due to the darkness, it was impossible to see past the firelight. I heard things chattering off in the dark and splashes of water around us. My handgun at my hab, I felt jumpy and ready to draw it. A gun might not be much against the monsters in this place, but it was better than nothing. Finally, the boat hit land and we got off onto a damp ground that my feet sank in every step. Hyper aware of everything around me, I followed the stranger being guided by the faint light. The man hadn't introduced himself and the feeling of seeing it before never faded. It was either solving that mystery or letting the fear of the dark take over her. Have we met before? I asked him in a low voice. No, he didn't even take his attention off the path. I knew his face but not his voice. A twig snapped and I couldn't see what caused it. Because my guide didn't appear worried, I didn't stop walking. My palms felt sweaty from stress. 
I just wanted us to hurry and save Catfish, but we remained at a slow walking speed. You have a gun, correct? Don't use it unless needed. It will not kill anything here, it will just upset them more. He warned and then gave me a quick glance over his shoulder. Do you work at the police station that we took your car from? That was a bit of an off-topic question, but I nodded. He didn't elaborate on why he had asked. Suddenly, I remembered why I knew this man when I thought of his face at the station. Every day, I walked by his photo on the way to my desk, along with photos of other fallen officers from that station. You're Troy Gavin. What on earth are you doing in the swamp? I blurted out. His pace stopped for a moment at my words before carrying on. At some point, this man was human and worked as a detective two years before I got the job. I had heard some about his past and it was slowly coming back in bits and pieces. He had disappeared and was assumed dead. But there was a reason that I was forgetting. It's a long story, he started. I have nothing else to do. I don't mean to pry if you don't want to tell me though. I commented with a shrug. Another glance as he decided to answer my questions. It was a sign that we were in a safer part of the bayou if he was still fine speaking so casually. Well, I worked as a detective in the same station that you're at. Some little girls were being kidnapped and I was able to track down the guy but the problem was, it was a priest. A combination of a good lawyer and his flock giving him a false alibi got him off of the charges. We walked. Gavin's voice low in the oppressing darkness around us. The torch flickered and I started to feel a terrible pit of ice forming in my stomach. Details of the case that I heard about came back to my memory and I regretted asking Gavin about it. I knew what that priest did when he got off free. Gavin continued on regardless. When he got out, he did the same thing to my ten-year-old sister. I felt cold and I needed to stop walking. Gavin also stopped and half turned in my direction, his face with a hard expression. I never should have asked. I shook my head, trying to clear it. I'm so sorry. I bet that lawyer and the people that vouched for him couldn't forgive themselves for helping a monster like that. For a moment, Gavin almost looked amused in the firelight. Something reflected off his finger and for the first time, I noticed a wedding band. He gave up a married and normal human life and he turned into something else. I knew the priest was dead, but didn't hear the details of how that had happened. New cops normally didn't get the download on all the older cases, unless they were really interesting or relevant. The lawyer quit. The ones who gave the false alibis had their lives ruined in some way or another. I could arrest the priest for my sister's murder, but I wanted everyone to suffer. I wanted that lawyer to lose everything. I wanted to mess with him in the most painful way possible. In the end, I did so. I found the three words to say that would utterly ruin him. Swallowing the lump that formed in my throat, I almost didn't want the answer that I asked for. A girl died, but that man was only doing his job. If he quit after, he might not have known the priest was guilty and just did what he was hired for. I didn't know how I felt about Gavin taking revenge on the man. 
What did you say to him? I asked in a strained voice. I love you. My heart skipped a beat and my eyes went back to the wedding band. The man did the cruelest thing he could think of by marrying the lawyer who felt responsible for his little sister's murder. Instead of harassing him or physically hurting him, he drove in emotional pain every time he looked at his new husband. I couldn't imagine being so heartless to do such a thing. When I didn't respond, Gavin turned to carry on. I belong here. I was already a monster before Catfish showed me how to turn into one. His voice was low and we started walking again. I thought that I heard some soft sounds under his voice, but replied before I started to try and find the source. Did you come here because you feel guilty for what you did? I asked, unable to keep the question unspoken. Suddenly, sound erupted from behind. It was something that did not belong in a bayou. It was so foreign and unnerving that I couldn't help myself from turning around, trying to find out what was making it. It was clapping. Not scattered clapping, but rhythmic clapping, as if hundreds of people were all clapping at once, and in a beat only they knew. Don't look at them. Gavin warned and it was too late. When I looked, the darkness came away all at once. The bayou looked like it was at dusk with enough light to see by. My eyes adjusted as I saw countless figures crowding between the mossy trees. They clapped but stopped the second that my eyes landed on them. All stood frozen in time, hands raised similar to a prayer. Each and every one of these people were dead. Glossy blank eyes stared as these smelled it. Rotted flesh peeled away from bones and clothing hung off their thin frames. My mouth opened to scream but no noise came out as all at once they rushed forward. A hand wrapped around my eyes and Gavin grabbed around my shoulder from behind to draw me closer. I felt the air rush past as those figures ran by, the clapping starting up again. I screamed in them but the noise being drowned out by the clapping sound. As suddenly as it had happened, it had stopped. And Gavin lowered his hands and went back to the still-lit torch that he had dropped. I was still trembling and breathing hard, not understanding what I just saw. The light faded back to a darkness that made it impossible to see if there was more of the dead looking at us. What? I croaked out, unable to walk. Gavin took my arm and dragged my shaking body forward until I could take some steps of my own. He wasn't afraid in the slightest. That fact made dread spread through my entire body. I had just witnessed the most frightening thing in my entire life and it didn't even face him. That was just the tide. Don't worry about it. Unless you pay attention to them, you won't get swept up in it. He explained. That, a tide, this place. Can I ever understand anything about it? I asked. He paused and shook his head. He could tell me everything about this side of the bayou where he and Catfish lived, but I was a human. I would never understand what creatures roamed and the reasons for their existence. If I was lucky, that army of the dead would be the only thing that we came across. I wasn't. Keeping a hand on my sidearm at all times, we pushed on. 
I didn't even dare slap the bugs away trying to make a meal out of me. The further that we went, the more the darkness fought against the torchlight. I needed to stay on Gavin's heels to stay inside the light. He was also looking tense. Beads of sweat ran down his face. The man looking ready to attack at any moment. Squinting, I thought I saw something beyond our light. A small dot of color. We slowly got closer and the color grew larger. It appeared to be a flickering light, a candle maybe. Hope filled my chest for a second. Is that... I asked in a whisper. Something in the darkness reacted to my voice. A large claw came down on Gavin, causing him to cry out in pain. It tore away his clothing and took parts of his chest with it. The torch was dropped and somehow, he had managed to push me back and out of danger. I watched horrified on the ground from being shoved so hard that I fell over my own feet. Gavin clutched at his bleeding chest and growled at whatever it attacked a second before. The hut is a bit ahead of us. Run towards the light. He shouted over his shoulder. The claw came back into the light and he jumped back, causing his wounds to spill blood over the ground. I stood on trembling legs, wanting to help. My gun was out without being aware that I drew it. I can't leave you, I said sternly. Don't be stupid, just run. I'll be fine. His words were nearly cut off by the claw coming back. This time, he grabbed a hold of it by the wrist, his fingers digging into the black-scaled flash. He did not, in fact, look fine. Even so, I needed to trust him. I couldn't do anything else. I ran, leaving him behind with the torch. When I was a few feet away, I realized that what he was waiting for, he could not fight back unless I was out of the way. A roar along with the sounds of trees being torn from the earth made me look at where Gavin once stood. From his form burst forth a massive creature. The man was not human, but I never imagined what he truly was. Flames burst from these small torch to surround his true body, swirling dangerously. I felt the heat from where I stood. A giant tail came crashing through and knocked thin trees aside. In the middle of those glowing flames stood an albino alligator. He tore through the darkness, large whips of his tail nearly missing me as I fled. The creature could easily tear apart the bayou if it wished. I ran away from the scene towards the flickering light in the darkness. Tripping along, I didn't slow down. The battle that I left echoed through the dark. No matter how much I pushed, it felt like that small flicker of a candle wasn't getting any closer. A hand darted from the inky black, grabbing a hold of my arm. I shook it off to keep running. When I nearly drowned, countless hands tried to take me down into the water. Now, they were trying to pull me into the never-ending darkness. They tore at my clothing, ripped and doing their best to keep me still. But I wasn't going to give up. I refused. Catfish was going to die unless I kept running. He couldn't save me this time and Gavin was busy with bigger threads. More and more of those hands I grabbed as I pulled my body away. I felt like I was walking through molasses. And yet the candlelight didn't get any closer. The moment that my body nearly gave up on its own, I slammed into something. 
fumbling in the dark. My hands ran along the wall that I was against to find that it wasn't a wall but a door instead. Finding the handle, I put everything that I had left to push open the door, and I fell into the small hut. I collapsed to the wooden floor, unable to stay awake any longer. I woke up, not knowing where I was or how long I had been out for. Sitting up, my head felt heavy and my body throbbed in pain. I was in a small hut, candles burning for light in a fireplace on the far side of the room burning away. Instead of a spooky witch's hut I had expected, the place was decorated in lace and soft, pastel colors. Plush armchairs and couches looking like they were from the 60s sat. Tea sets lined the shelving. I slowly stood, not knowing if I had arrived in the right place. Human, what brings you here? A raspy voice made me jump. I grabbed for my weapon to find it missing. Those hands from before must have grabbed it. The voice belonged to a creature standing by the fire. I was certain it hadn't been there before. It was a bit taller than myself. A cloak kept most of its face and form hidden, but the long snout poking from under the fabric made it clear what the creature was. Clawed hands picked up a fire poker to move the embers around as I collected myself. I was staring at an upright alligator. A long tail came from under the cloak, leaving drag marks on the dusty floor. I, catfish is hurt. I've come here for some help. Uh, miss... No one had told me this creature's name. All I knew was that it was a female. After poking the fire some more, she replaced the poker. Finally, she turned her half hidden face in my direction. Names hold power. You shall not learn mine. I might be able to help you. Are you aware that there shall be a price for my assistance? Her voice was low and hard to hear as if she didn't speak often. Anything to save him, please. I can't let Cat die. It wasn't wise to show how desperate I was, but after everything, I couldn't hold it back. A soft sound, almost like a laugh, came from her as she walked over to a table holding countless teacups. Things. I do not desire things. They are boring. With those words, she dropped the teacup, letting it shatter on the floor. But words, they are not. They hold power. They can amuse me. My price to save catfish is simple. Answer my question. Why do you wish to save him? As she spoke, she walked over until her snout almost touched my face. I felt myself start to sweat from the stress. I mean, what did she mean? Why did anyone need a reason to want to save someone? It was just something people did without thinking. There had to be some sort of trap in this simple question. He's a good kid. Of course I would want to save him. I answered and it didn't please her. A kid? That creature is almost as old as the bayou itself. But I suppose he never truly matured. But that is not your true answer. I ask again. Why do you wish to save him? Things that I wanted to forget started to creep in. The reasons for moving and leaving everything behind. The reasons why I changed my entire life and went somewhere I knew nothing about. This creature knew it was related to why I kept buying lunch for catfish. 
and why we still spend time with each other. I shook my head, trying to banish the thoughts. It's just, there isn't a reason. I lied. She gave out a hiss. Backing away, I felt words catch in my throat. I knew that she was about to toss me out. Unless I said the truth, Catfish wouldn't be saved. And yet admitting my shame was harder than fighting through the bayou. I just wanted to forget everything. Yet it was my past that could save someone that I cared about. I stood at trying to speak. It was like a nightmare where I couldn't even scream. I... That single word broke it and the rest flooded out. I wanted to save him because my girlfriend had miscarried and I'm scared that I won't have kids. She never wanted any and yet it just happened. I don't know how badly I wanted to raise a child until we had lost ours. For months I kept thinking of the possible outcomes of what it could have been and what never happened. My son or daughter had died that day and my girlfriend nearly did too. Christ. I'm such an awful person that I cared more about not having a child more than her life. So, I moved to thinking that it would be better for her. When I saw Catfish, I just... I felt as if he was the child that I had never met. I'm such a piece of crap. I want to save him because I'm using him as a replacement. Tears came to my eyes and I kept my head down, unable to meet the creature's gaze. Admitting everything for the first time out loud hurt more than anything else in my life. Cutting an arm off would have hurt less. It was something that I could never forgive myself for. Regardless of how I saw Catfish, he didn't deserve to die because of my feelings. The creature let out another hiss, but this time it sounded as if she was laughing. You humans never cease to amuse me. Fine, wait a second. My head shot up, my chest feeling light, hoping that I had heard her right. She shuffled around, digging through cupboards and teapots, and finally she found what she was looking for. She walked over to hand me a vial of clear liquid. Pour some of this over his wound and make him drink the rest. Now hurry and get your disgusting alligator out of form here. He's making the worst racket and I can't stand it. The thank you was stuck in my throat, but instead, I raised an eyebrow at the alligator comment. She waved a hand in a shooing motion. I'm a crocodile. Do not confuse me for those inept swamp creatures. Even from all my stress, I almost laughed. Finally thanking her, I left the hut frightened of what I would see outside. What was outside was a sight that I would never expect. The bayou was brighter, looking like the sun just rose. In front of the hut was a trail of destruction. Deep grooves in the ground where water started seeping in. Trees torn apart or smoldering. In the middle of the must stood Gavin looking perfectly fine. I made a shortcut back, he announced. I was starting to think this guy was the scariest thing in the bayou at that moment. I was thankful that Catfish had made friends with them. We wasted no time on small talk, racing through the path that Gavin had opened up, and we found the boat much faster than we expected. It was agony sitting on the wooden seat as the boat floated along. Catfish was still out there hurt, and I just wanted to get back to him as fast as I could. Finally, I saw him through the trees. I again got out of the boat to rush over to the boy, Violent hand. 
My heart sank when catfish appeared even worse than before. Wasting no time, I lifted the blanket to get a look at his wound for the first time. I nearly shut down at the gaping hole in his side. Steadying myself, I did what I was told. Pouring the liquid over the wound made catfish flinch, showing that he was still alive. Getting him to drink some was a bit of a task, though. After the vial was empty, I took him into my arms to wait. Gavin stayed on the boat, not even looking in our direction. He must feel guilty for catfish getting hurt in the first place and couldn't bring himself to go over to him. I wasn't sure what I was waiting for. As I held the boy, his wound healed when I wasn't paying attention. He coughed a few times and then sat up with his own strength. Looking around confused, his eyes landed on me alive but worn out. Unable to help himself, he crushed my ribs in a tight hug. I was worried you weren't going to come back. Promise me that you'll never do anything stupid like that again, Cavish scolded. I hugged him back so thankful that he was alive. Going through any kind of nightmare bayou was well with his life. His clothing tourney looked just as bad as I did. Giving him a proper look over, I noticed something different about the boy. It was hard to place. His freckles were toned down slightly, and his mouth didn't appear as wide as before. That appears the one who kept me alive has a terrible sense of humor. Looks like I was healed but also turned into a human. Catfish announced after looking himself over. What? Why? I asked, shot. Well, I lied to you before when I said that I was only a catfish. I am something else. But because humans would not understand my form, I went with a name of something that I resembled. The organ that was stolen is something that humans do not have. So if I'm a human, I would no longer be dying due to it missing. My mouth dropped open as he spoke. It made sense in a way, but was it really easy to change what he was instead of just healing him? Or maybe that woman did it for a laugh. What are you going to do now? I mean, can you live here with all those dangerous monsters around? Do you think that Gavin can watch over you? Catfish looked over at the man standing in the boat, watching us before shaking his head. I suppose this will wear off and I'll return to what I was before fully healed, but I don't know how long it'll take. There's a chance that I'll survive here until then, but it is a dangerous place. I guess that I'll just have to make it work. He nearly died and yet Catfish didn't look concerned. He gave a shrug and not worried about his future. After all, we met because he was alright trying to eat from the garbage. He might be just fine being homeless, but I couldn't let that happen. You can stay with me, I told him. That startled him more than his near-death experience. Shaking his head, he was refusing because he was embarrassed rather than not wanting to take my offer. I couldn't. He started shyly. This is a selfish offer on my part, I told him. I spent the next few minutes explaining to him what made me move in the first place and how I had been using his company. I found the words easier to say a second time. I fully expected him to hate me or be disgusted over the truth of why I wanted him in my life, but instead he gave a calm smile. As long as you're happy and don't mind me taking up space, then I would like to stay with you until I return to what I was before.
It was a mutually beneficial agreement. Catfish got food and shelter, and I could treat him like the child that I always wanted. It may be twisted and selfish on my part, but he didn't appear to care in the slightest. Gavin brought along the boat so we could get out of the bayou. Catfish was still exhausted, so he fell asleep as the boat drifted along towards the dock. Staring at Gavin's back, I felt a little guilty for taking Catfish away. Is this alright? I asked the man. As long as he's happy, then it is. We didn't speak again until the boat bumped against the wooden dock. I lifted Catfish onto my back to carry him off the boat. Pausing, I looked at Gavin who still stood in the boat, giving me a cold stare. You should go back home. You don't belong in the bayou, I told him. His face twisted in a snarl at those words. For a moment, I thought that he would attack. I told you I'm a monster. I do belong here. He hissed in rage. You kept the wedding ring. I replied in a soft tone. His face fell and then he turned it away, looking distraught over the fact. He couldn't hide the fact that he loved the man that he had married. The relationship may have started out as revenge, but it turned into something more than that. I wondered if his partner was hurting more now that he left. I walked back to the front of the boat and it started to drift away from the dock. I'll think about it. Gavin said finally before he got too far away. I watched until he was out of sight before turning away to bring Catfish home. In the days after that event, I told my boss that my nephew had arrived and I was taking care of him for a while. Catfish would drop by the station to bring me lunch on days that we didn't go out. Everybody loved him. I wanted to put him in school, but because he didn't have any kind of paperwork, that was impossible. So instead, we started on worksheets, found online as homework. Neither of us knew how long he would remain a human for. It could be a year and it could be longer. Until he returned to the bayou, I was glad to let him stay. A few months after taking in catfish, I walked into work and noticed something different. A small change that made me smile. Troy Gavin's photo was taken down from the fallen officer wall. He might not have returned home, but at least people now knew that he was still alive. It was a small step and I was proud of him. I visited the back rooms on accident. Written by G. Tripp, 14. It was 5.13pm on a nondescript summer night, and it felt like the air conditioning units in the office had proudly hit the peak of their effectiveness back in the mid-90s. Low buzzing droned overhead from the fluorescent tube lights that hung from the low ceiling. It sounded like a horrible mixture of cicadas and tinnitus. Occasionally, I could feel my left eyebrow twitch uncontrollably when I concentrated too closely on the hum. My hangover hadn't improved the situation by any means. Most people tend to outgrow the urge to drink until the last call in dingy barrooms during their college days. But this is character progression that I hadn't gained even in my early 30s. I told myself that every night I leave work that I needed to just go home and get some rest. But without fail, I ended up in some dive. 
usually Jimmy T's. I drank long necks by the bucket full until about 2am. The trouble was that my job started at 7am. Under the best conditions, the taxi had dropped me off at my apartment by like 2.30, and I could manage to eat an unsatisfying microwave meal and crawl into bed by 3am. That would leave me about three hours to sleep if I got up to take a shower before work. Three and a half if I skipped the shower. Disgusting as it is, I usually skipped it. But who cared? In a little over 15 minutes, I had already known that I would be on my way to the bar. I was a 35-year-old single man with a rat's nest apartment. I did temp job assignment filing old claims from some mid-level insurance company in the Midwest. My college career had resulted in two dropouts and a low-level felony for a bar fight that got a little too out of hand. I think it was Hunter S. Thompson who said, buy the ticket, take the ride. And I bought that ticket all right. A lifetime of poor decisions that had resulted in a mostly loathsome existence. Even that terrible gig at a bland insurance company was just a drop of water trying to put out a house fire. Soon enough, this assignment would end. I would find myself at the temp agency office again, filling out multiple choice question surveys to find the next position. It was unlikely to be any more fulfilling, but it would cover the bills for a short time. And that's all I worried about in those days, paying the bills, getting a few groceries every week, a little extra spending money to drink away the sorrow of lost years down at Jimmy T's. At that moment, I was worried about that dang humming. I knew that it was the electricity crackling in the bulbs overhead, but the noise seemed to be a surround sound sympathy that evening. My bones almost seemed to vibrate with the noise, as though I was standing too close to a speaker at a rock concert. The air itself even seemed to be getting thicker. You know the feeling when the humidity is so tangible, you think you could almost cut it with a bread knife. The sweat was running down my neck and forehead in small, constant streams. Probably gave off the faint odor of beer from the night before, which made me nervous. As much as I disliked the job that I had, I needed the money. Smelling like alcohol wasn't a good way to keep gainful employment. Why did I keep doing that to myself? My stomach was starting to get upset, and I knew that I would need to go to the bathroom soon. Whether it had been a result of a virus or of the drinking, I would never know. My old desk chair squeaked as I pushed back from the desk in my cubicle and stood up. The temp in the cubicle next to mine, Brandon, was snoring softly in his chair, which is a relief. A sleeping co-worker seems rather unlikely to have smelled my beer-tinged sweat. Brandon was a nice enough guy, though. This is my third placement with him from the agency. He's in his mid-twenties and he goes to community college during the evening. A photo of him, his wife, and their newborn twins sat on his desk. The twins kept him awake throughout the night pretty often. He told me that they both had colic and they couldn't settle down for more than a half hour at a time. I always felt bad for him. Whenever I caught him sleeping at the desk, I never said anything. No telling how many times he had smelled booze on me and let it go. No need to rock the boat. 
In the corner near the hallways to the conference room, I could see a custodian in coveralls wringing a mop into a yellow bucket. Gray streaks of water ran down the beige walls of the office onto the floor. The ceiling tiles above it were dotted with red and yellow rings that were beginning to sag. Those strange, rusty red and yellow spots always reminded me of a draining wound. I'm sure that it was just a condensation runoff from the archaic air conditioning units on the roof. Seeping water mixed with the stifling temperature inside was likely one of the culprits responsible for the stifling humidity there. It had also produced the unfortunate side effect of an always present smell of must and mildew. The smell of forgotten wet laundry had lingered in the office for days. My hangovers weren't very intense on a good morning, which made the odor just a nuisance. That day, though, the aroma wasn't mingling well with the post-binge-drinking stomach roll that I had felt since I had arrived. I chuckled to myself as I watched the custodian soak the water out of the thin industrial carpeting below the league. It wasn't a laugh at his frustration or misfortune with the water that flowed from the ceiling. The way that he hung his head down below his shoulders as he worked on the mass made it look like he had no head at all. The headless custodian, just like the headless horseman of Sleepy Hollow, fame with lower stakes. My stomach gurgled like a pot that was about to overflow, so I made my way to the restroom. I hoped that no one would be in there to hear whatever gastrointestinal pyrotechnics that I would produce. With my luck, I thought, there wouldn't be an available stall. The walk down the access hallway to the restrooms was free of any run-ins or small talk with co-workers. Standing inside the white tile bathroom, the temperature felt 10 degrees cooler than the cubicle bullpen. Cold air filled my lungs and the rumbling in my stomach had begun to cease. Pushing open the stall, I sat down on the closed toilet lid and propped my knees on my elbows. Resting my head between my hands and I waited to see if the ache in my stomach would pass. With my eyes closed and sitting in the cooler temperature, it felt as though I may have recovered from it without the usual round of light vomiting. The humming noise in my ears was beginning to intensify. It had been present since the first day that I started there, but it had never been that overbearing. In the cool, empty bathroom, it grew to a pitch that I had never heard before. Shifting my hands over my ears, I tucked my head into my chest tightly in an attempt to block out the increasing noise. My eyes were closed, but I could see the light rise brightly to meet the same unnatural level as the humming continued. What drops of liquid began to flow from my ears and down my jawline? I knew that my ears were probably bleeding, but I was too afraid to uncover them to check for the fear that the ungodly hum would have ruptured my eardrums. The overwhelming sensation of the droning, mixed with the unnaturally bright light, had completely disoriented me. Blindly, I drew away a hand from my right ear and began to feel for the door to the stall. I had to get out of that bathroom before I went mad. As I stood from the toilet to make my exit, I continued to thrust my arm forward to find the latch. My hand finally found the smooth facing of the stall door, and I slid my fingers down to where the latch should have been, but I didn't find anything. My heart rate had started to rise and panic had taken over. 
With all my strength, I started slamming my left shoulder into the stall door. The humming and brightness of the light hadn't subsided. My pulse raced as I scrambled around the bathroom stall like a caged in animal. The stall door would bow out a bit each time that I hit it, but it never gave away. I slammed into the door. As I ran my shoulder into it for the last time, I mistakenly thought the door was giving way. I was moving forward now beyond where the door was, but it felt as if though my body was passing through gelatin. When I opened my eyes to see what was happening, all I could see was a gray blur. The blinding light and maddening hum were gone for a moment. It seemed as though I drifted forward through the gray haze for hours. There was no frame of reference for where I was or what was surrounding me. My limbs felt frozen in place and my eyes could only leer straight ahead, struggling to find any point in the distance to concentrate on. Suddenly, my slow movement forward began to accelerate, and I tumbled down onto an unforgiving surface. My hand slid over the top of rough fibers, leaving hot, raw flesh on my palms. A moment later, my head made contact with the ground, and my vision transitioned from gray to white to total darkness. I don't know how long I lay on the floor unconscious, but... The first thing I could remember when I started to come to was the humming. It was back but nowhere near as intense as it had been before. My face was flat against the rough carpet of the floor, and I could feel the moisture on my skin and in my clothing. Before I opened my eyes, I remember thinking to myself that the toilets in the bathroom had to have been leaking. The thought of laying in a pool of toilet water disgusted me at first, but the coolness was almost comforting. My eyes were still closed and I relished for a moment the fact that my stomach was no longer waging war with the rest of my body. It was at that moment that it occurred to me that there was no carpet in the bathroom at work. The entire room was a sterile white with cheap ceramic tile. The industrial lighting always reflected annoyingly off of each characterless surface. My eyes jolted open and began to drink in the alien yet familiar room. The walls were all a lifeless yellow, free of windows or decoration. When I was a child, I could remember going to my great-grandmother's house with my parents. She had smoked cigarette after cigarette as we sat in the old cracker box house and the decades worth of nicotine. It had painted the walls the same sickly color as this room. It looked like the insurance office that I had worked at for the past few weeks. Somehow, it also didn't look like it at all. It was the same basic layout, but it felt all wrong. Thin, rough carpet a shade or two darker than the wall stretched across the room. As I pushed myself up onto my feet, I could hear the squish of moisture below them. There wasn't enough water in the carpet to stand on top but the sound and shifting fibers under my feet told me that the entire room was saturated. The reek of mildew was like a long-forgotten gym bag of sweaty clothing. I had expected the overpowering smell to make my stomach turn again, but the sensation never came. It felt as though I hadn't eaten in ages. My stomach growled with hunger rather than the usual hangover gurgle. 
I placed my hands on my stomach to comfort the rumbling and was surprised to feel the unusually long fingernails scrape against the fabric of my cheap button-up shirt. Holding my hands in front of my face, I could see that the nails were longer than I had ever allowed them to grow. The tips were the same dull yellow as the nicotine-covered walls. Lifting my hand to my face, I used the butt of my palm to rub my eyes in hope of readjusting my vision. As my hand slid down my face, I could feel an even coating of beard growth on my cheeks. Regardless of how much I had let myself go over the years, I had never allowed myself more than two days worth of stubble. I was equally surprised to feel the shaggy hair brushing my forehead and the top of my ears. My hair had always been cut short out of laziness more than anything. If you buzz your hair down to about a quarter inch with a beard trimmer, it saves money on haircuts and saves you the time of having to fix it in the morning before going to work. How long had I been there? Drifting through the gray haze, it seemed like hours, but my hair and nails had grown as though I hadn't groomed myself in weeks. Hello? I said quietly. Is anyone in here? Silence. Hello? I said slightly louder than the first time. Please, if anyone is here, please say something. No response. My pulse had started to surge. Hello? I screamed as loudly as I could. Before I could follow up on my initial shout, my voice began to echo back to me. It was mixed with the familiar hum from the lights above my head. The bulbs dimmed and reignited with each echo. The pitch and vibration of the echo rattled inside of my skull, and I placed my hands over my ears again. Dry blood crunched under my palms as I pressed them against the sides of my head. I knew the echo would have driven me mad if I had continued to listen. After a few moments, I could see that the lights were no longer flickering in response to the echo, and I uncovered my ears. My eyes drifted from side to side in the room, taking in the details. It was the cubicle bullpen where I had worked those past few weeks, but all of the furniture was now gone. Where there had once been dozens of removable walls, desks, chairs, and generic potted plants sat in unsettling space. The wet carpet still had the indentions of heavy furniture and worn paths where the office drones had walked. Even the wall that had the dark stain from the leaking water looked the same. I could see small ribbons of water pouring from the ceiling tile above it. Red and yellow stains now spread to the three tiles from where the leak had started. The tile closest to the wall where it had originated was now almost a black in the center. It sagged so deeply, I couldn't understand how the tile hadn't given way under pressure. It looked like a swollen wound that was readying itself to rupture and spilled all of its foul fluid onto the floor below. In a daze, I stumbled forward and began to walk toward the hallway that led to the reception area at the front of the building. While the lights overhead burned brightly, I could see that the hallway was void of any illumination. As I stepped closer, the bulbs began to flicker and hum to life. As the lights over my shoulder toward the back of the bullpen began to crackle and fade to black. When I entered the narrow hallway, the lights burned brightly and the low ceilings made the constant humming grow in intensity.
The tinnitus-like ringing in my ears began to rise and my head began to throb. My eyelids twitched as I focused on the hallway ahead of me. It should have only been about 20 feet to the reception area, but the hallways in front of me seemed to stretch on for miles. Overhead, lights began to kick on one by one continuously into a never-ending tunnel. Glancing over my shoulder, I could see that the cubicle room was now completely dark. My feet began to amble forward. I walked at a medium pace down the hallway for what I assumed was about 10 or 15 minutes, but no end was in sight. Lights continued to turn on overhead, producing the same dull humming noise that I had become so accustomed to. The thought had crossed my mind numerous times to call out for help, but I was too scared that the terrible hum-filled echo would return and drive me to complete madness, so I decided against it. It was clear to me that no one else was there anyway, until I heard these squishing footsteps behind me in the distance. As I turned to look, I was surprised to see that the entrance to the cubicle area was directly behind me. After walking for an undetermined period, I had expected to see an endless hallway, but I had made no progress at all. Stepping back into the room, the lights began to flutter back to life, revealing the same empty room as before. Only it wasn't the same. There was still no furniture and the carpet was still soaked in water, but the walls looked different. They had become covered in slick streaks. When I had left the room earlier to enter that endless hallway, there was only a single dark line of water running down the wall. Upon my return, the entire room was covered in dark streaks leading from the ceiling down to the carpet. Water had now pooled deeply enough that the reflection of the humming light bulbs could be seen on the floor. The ceiling had become pockmarked with the red and yellow swelling tiles. They sagged disgustingly between the supports. Fat drops of stagnant water gathered at the tips of these swollen tiles and dripped silently onto the sodden floor. Something splashed and squished to my right and it made me jump. I spun my body to face the sound and saw a figure curled into a ball in the corner of the room. Drops of the filthy water peppered their dry white shirt and I could see it beginning to cling to their emaciated frame. Light sobs and mutters from the huddled mass drifted into my ears and almost sounded like music after the unending humming. Hello? I said hesitantly as I slowly walked toward the corner. Are you okay? Do you know where we are? The figure lifted its head from behind a curled arm. Even with the addition of a new scruffy beard as stringy hair and an uncharacteristically thin frame... I still recognized them. It was Brandon, my cubicle neighbor. He was wearing the same nondescript outfit that he did nearly every day, but it looked careworn and tattered in comparison with his usual professional exterior. Brandon? I asked. Hey, is that you, buddy? He didn't respond but maintained eye contact with me. His eyes were piercing and he seemed to shake as I walked towards him. With every footfall, his arms squeezed around his body more tightly. It looked as though he were trying to use his feet to push himself further into the corner with no success. 
Brandon, I said reassuringly. It's me. We're going to be all right. How did you get here? His mouth opened and a dry croaking came out. The words were incoherent as he rasped. He cleared his throat and stretched his neck before trying again. It was time to go home. He finally replied in a shaky voice. It was time to go home and you were gone. What? It was time to go home and you weren't in your cubicle. He stammered. I went to look for you and now I'm here. I asked Branton how he had ended up here, but he just kept repeating himself over and over. It was time to go home. I wasn't in my cubicle. He went looking for me and now he was here. No matter what I asked, he never changed his answer. I offered him my hand to help him up and, to my surprise, he accepted it. Lifting him to his feet should have been easier considering how malnourished he looked, but this made me realize that I was likely in the same state. Seeing Brandon in the poor condition that he was in made me realize that I hadn't felt well either. My stomach grumbled with hunger. The roof of my mouth met my tongue like sandpaper on concrete. My joints ached with every step. I felt so much older. It felt like I had been in that place for years without food or water. Maybe I had been. Nothing in my body felt quite right. It was almost as though I had aged a decade or more in a few hours. I beckoned Brandon to follow me and return to the hallway that should have taken us to the reception area. The lights behind us began to dim just as they had before, and the electric hum of the lights ahead had stirred into life. When we turned the corner in the hallway to see the same endless tunnel that had been there when I went that way before. Our pace was as swift as our weak legs would allow us. Brandon's labored breathing behind me was a welcome noise, as it somewhat covered the hum of the lights over our heads. I tried to make conversation with him, but he continued with the same replies from earlier in a lobe. But still, he kept pace with me. After what felt like hours of walking in the endless tunnel, I thought that I could see an end to it. The overhead lights of the hallway gave way to what appeared to be a larger, well-lit room beyond. I thought to myself that perhaps the last time I entered the hallway, I had imagined walking. Maybe the shock of this unusual place had caused me to hallucinate. Even Brandon seemed to have higher spirits than earlier. He tapped my shoulder and when I looked at him, he pointed ahead with a smile. We quickened our pace, even as we struggled against fatigue and hunger. By the time that we had almost reached the new room, we were almost running. Brandon's breathing had become ragged and heavy, but I could still hear him keeping pace just behind my shoulder. The end of the hallway was getting closer and closer, and my eyes struggled to adjust to the lights inside the room. The humming noise was only becoming louder. We entered the room and my heart sank as my eyes took it in. It was the cubicle room again. The near endless hallway had only led us back to where we had started. But the room was different than when we had left it. The walls were the same monotone yellow as I originally had remembered them. All of the ceiling tiles were perfectly intact. 
None of the walls were marred by the dark streams of water leaking down from the ceiling. Even the carpet below our feet had been dry. In the center of the room was the custodian from our office. His head had still hung low past his shoulders, and he was using an old mop to soak the last of the water from the thin commercial carpet. Dirty swirls of water poured from the mop ringer into a scuffed yellow bucket beside him. Hey, I yelled to him. Hey, do you know how to get out of here? The man didn't respond. He only continued soaking dirty water from the carpet and reeing it into his bucket. Hey man, I shouted at him again from across the room. We can't find our way out, can you help us? As I finished my sentence, my words began to echo again with the electric humming undertone. Help us. My ears began to throb again until the echo had dissipated. Still, the custodian didn't acknowledge us. In the corner of my eye, I could see Brandon begin to shuffle slowly in the custodian's direction. He had become unsteady on his feet and I feared that we had exerted too much of our remaining energy during the run down the hallway. He began to wave his arms over his head. It's time to go home, Brandon said shakily. He wasn't in his cubicle and I went to look for him. Brandon continued forward, repeating the same sentences time after time. The custodian never turned to look at him. His soggy mop may be on this trip from the carpet to the ringer. He never turned his head. I was frozen in place and watched as Brandon continued forward. My pulse was rising again, and I knew that I should have stopped him from moving any further, but I was frozen in place. The dry husk of my vocal cords wouldn't even allow me to call out to him. As he reached the custodian, he extended one of his waving arms and tapped the man on the shoulder. The custodian ignored him and continued to soak up the putrid water from the carpet. Brandon began tapping him more rapidly with the same result. After a few moments of trying to get his attention, I saw Brandon grab a fistful of the man's overalls and turn him around. Brandon stumbled back and fell to the floor as the thing turned to face him. The figure of a man stood before us, but there was no head at all. Its coveralls were unzipped to the pelvic bone, revealing a chest covered in hundreds of reptilian eyes. They blinked rapidly in a rotation, producing the look of a hypnotizing swirl. As soon as the last eye blinked, the first one began again. Below the cluster of eyes, a circular mouth of wide, sharp teeth chittered. Three rope-like tongues dangled and flopped wildly from the opening covering the crouch of the coveralls and thick saliva. They began to extend toward Brandon, who had become frozen in fear on the floor in front of the thing. The mob dropped from its hands, splashing into the bucket. They weren't hands exactly. Its arms ended in two fleshy crab claws lined on the inside with jagged fingernails. Flakes of red and yellow splotches contrasted with the creature's pale skin. In an instant, the three writhing tongues extended forward and wrapped around Brandon's wrists and throat. Brandon began to slide forward on the carpet, and the abomination's round mouth opened wider, and its teeth began to rotate slowly in the gray gums. Its eyes began to blink more rapidly, 
and I was transfixed by the shifting pattern. Brandon didn't even struggle as he grew closer to the wriggling maw. His head went in first and there was a wet crunch. Brandon's body began to spasm violently. His right leg swung wildly to the outside as the thing began to slide his shoulders into the pulsing mouth. A foot connected with the bucket of filthy water and sent it spinning to the side. The sudden movement from the bucket broke my fixation on the horror before me. I turned and ran back into the endless hallway. Lights bloomed into life and the overwhelming hum began to increase. The wet crunching and snapping of bones were enough to make me thankful that the electric hum had overtaken it. My legs ached and my lungs felt as though they may burst as I pounded down the hallways. I had expected to run down the hallway for hours, but after only minutes, there was an unexpected hard right turn ahead of me. The momentum that I had gained, paired with the lack of control in my legs, caused me to go crashing into the wall as I attempted to make the turn. When my shoulder connected to the wall, I had expected it to bounce off of it, but instead, my body began to slide through. As my head passed beyond the boundary of the yellow wall, the gray haze overtook my vision once again. I continued to feel as though I were drifting sideways. Closing my eyes, I relished the silence and the absence of light. I came to on my back on the bathroom floor to a light tapping on my face. A faint voice had filled my ears and my eyes began to open. Brandon stood over the top of me with a worried look on his face. His voice finally came into focus. It was time to go home and you were gone, he said. My heart raised. I went to look for you. No, don't. Don't say that. I stammered as I batted his hand away from my face. Don't say that. Brandon looked at me with a puzzled stare. You alright? He asked as he had extended his hand to help me up. I took it and pushed myself from the ground. You look like you've been through it, man. I nodded as I ran my hands over my face. The beard and shaggy hair were gone. My fingernails were back to their usual, well-manicured length. My joints felt great. Looking down at my watch, I could see that the time was 5.32pm. I had the wildest dream today at my desk, Brandon said. I was in this room. Not right now. I sat and held my hand up in his direction. This hangover is killing me and I'm ready to get home. Brandon and I walked out of the bathroom through the cubicle bullpen and into the hallway to the reception area. As we rounded the corner, I caught a glimpse of the janitor in his coveralls facing away from us. Me paid us no mind and we returned the favor. I increased my pace and Brandon followed behind. I'll never step foot in that office again. I think I'm done drinking too. Monday, I'm going to have to get my act together, find a better job, form better habits. This isn't for me. I don't know where I went for those eternity long minutes, but I never want to see it again. My father was a police detective in Texas. One of his cases still terrifies him. Written by Crest O'Razors. I'm originally from Ireland, as was my father and his ancestors. 
Originally, they were among the wealthiest people in the country, until the blight hit. After its rampage, my ancestors slowly moved from poverty and into what I would say is upper middle class to the lower part of the upper class. Not really rich, but enough to indulge in expensive things, like boats and art. Tired of the constant harassment from the English folk in his hometown and in Britain itself where he frequently visited to do business, he moved to the United States in 1948. He originally served in the Second Great War and was a hero amongst his comrades, saving their lives from the likes of the Germans and Japanese forces. After serving there, he settled in Massachusetts, where he got a job at a police station about a half mile from Worcester, which only accepted him because he was a smart guy and could easily tell if somebody was lying. There, he worked on several cases, even on the infamous Whitney Bulger case. However, he got bored and he soon moved down south to a relatively decent-sized town about an hour from Dallas. There, he was one of, if not the best in the forest. He would always wear a dark suit jacket, light brown leather pants, and dark shoes fit with a blue tie. His green eyes, dark brown hair, tall and slightly muscular build, was enough to make you question if you should even spit at him. But I'm getting off track. One night when he was finishing his paperwork, he received a letter from a man named Emil Powers. Emil told him in the letter that his daughter was missing and detached was a sketch of the abductor, or what looked like him. Till morn, he thought to himself. When his boss, Mr. E, arrived at the office, he immediately told him about the letter. Despite not having a good relationship with Mr. E, my father could tolerate him. E was a notorious supporter of some bad doings in the area which my father hated with all this heart and soul, since he had experienced it firsthand in England and even in Texas. Well, son, this ain't nothing like I ever seen since I was a small feller. Why did you put it aside and focus on another case? One regarding, not them, he said. Well, I would prefer this case, my father answered. Mr. E knew there was no change in my father's mind. He was taller and not willing to take any of his crap, but still, he stood firm. You guys are always so firm like stone. That's why I like you and that's why you got the job. You ain't willing to back down even if the odds are against you 99 to 1. Heck, if I said no, you could have sued my butt. I'm not willing to take that chance to an Irish drunk guy either. Mr. E shrugged. My father could take it. I mean, he had been called worse before. Instead of saying anything back, he just stared blankly at him. I should do as you wish, he replied. Work on that case when you're complete with the other. Now get the heck out of my office before I cut your paycheck, Mr. E shouted. My father from now on will call him Liam, our family's most common name, left the office and sat at his desk. He began his work on a disappearance of a 14-year-old girl who had vanished seemingly without so much as a trace just days prior to him joining the police. Attached was a sketch of the person who was supposedly responsible for the disappearance. Little did he know that what he was dealing with was the work of a madman or as others say, a serial killer. 
and Liam worked day in and day out, up at 4 in the morning and leaving at 11 p.m., never wishing to be late and always giving us goodnight hugs while we slept like logs outside a cabin, waiting to be chopped and hauled into the burning flames that keep humanity warm. His reasoning was that crime never sleeps, and so neither should he. I wanted to let him sleep so I could take care of his work, but he told me to follow my own dreams. I knew that I couldn't convince my old man, so I let him be. One day, he came across a link between his previous case, the one involving the 14-year-old girl's disappearance and Emmy's letter. He noticed that both of the victims described in the cases were last seen near telephone poles and the sketches of these supposed abductors were eerily similar. Both had the same nose, the same hairstyle, around shoulder length, had a green 1963 Chevy pickup truck, and eerily similar license plates, with the last number being either a 5 or a 6 or a 9. Maybe it was just another coincidence like he had received several times, but this, it was all too similar. He drove to Emil's address and knocked on the door. A skinny, slightly shorter than my father, African-American man came out and asked Liam what he had wanted. Is Mr. Emil Powers home? I'd like to speak with him, he asked. Why the heck would he go with someone like you? You folk, ain't supposed to be among another, the man responded. I didn't know that, I ain't from around here, so sorry, Liam had answered. And then where you from, boy? He asked. Ireland. I moved here to escape harassment, but it seems that it's here too. Liam answered. Oh, you ain't seen nothing yet. The worst is yet to come. Now excuse me if I burst your bubble. Emil, get your butt downstairs right this minute. Some person here wants to speak with you. The man shouted. Come in, Darius. A voice likely Emil said. Suddenly a man roughly Darius's height came rushing down the steps. He carried his suit jacket in one arm and papers in the other. Sorry, I had to get some paperwork done for my daughter's funeral. You must be with the police squad, Emil had asked. I am, and I'm sorry for your loss. Now, I'm here to discuss the letter that you wrote. Where was she last seen, as in her location? Liam asked. Uh, Berkeley's near the post office. I told her to give me some chips for a barbecue that we were going to have. I waited for about an hour since. There was a lot of flavors there. It don't take her an hour to choose, so I thought that she was saying hi to her friends who were at their house without my knowledge. So when I called and they told me that she wasn't there, said somebody who claimed to be a relative had got her, but went the opposite of this place. Emil had answered. Liam asked several more questions, but I could never remember them. He thanked Emil and he left. He headed back to his office and sat down with the new information that he had received. He placed both cases on his desk, side by side. Liam looked at the cases, papers upon papers of the case files, descriptions, background, and other unimportant things that didn't matter to him. He worked until he fell asleep at his desk. At around 8am, he was woken up by his boss. The heck you doing sleeping on the job? He shouted. Sorry sir, I lost track of time from doing work too late, he replied. Tell that to me when I lose track of your dang paychecks, Mr. E spat. 
Liam said nothing, but just went back to reading the cases, but trouble was brewing for him. So he decided to visit Emil and the other family, the Antonios. First, he visited Emil at his workplace, a diner named V's. Ah, you again, what do you want from me? Can't you read the sign? Emil asked. Liam looked at the side reading, colored only. I mean, it was still the mid-60s and the Civil Rights Act was a month away. I don't care for signs, they're just words. Also, those folks wouldn't want a drunk like me. Liam smirked. You, sir, are a strange fellow. I'm surprised that you don't go for the whites-only places, Emil said. I've never done so. Those people treat me differently because I have a different freaking voice, Liam added. Dang, son, well, what can I get you? Emil asked. Uh, just a cheeseburger, fries, and a Coke. Oh, and a chocolate milkshake, he answered. All right, coming right up, Emil replied. As the food was cooking, Liam took out his notebook and a pen. I have some questions. Uh, first one, what was the last number on the license plate that supposedly took your daughter? Well, from what I could gather, the number seemed to be 5, 6, or 9. I need to know what the number is, Liam asked. I don't know nothing. From what I could get, some man who saw the whole dang encounter saw the plates and said the number was a 5. Another who saw it said it was a 6. And my brother said it was a 9. Well, I think it was a 5 from what I made out, Emil answered. Me placed the food in front of Liam and Liam began eating it. So, you don't eat a lot of fast food, Emil asked. Not really. I usually eat my sandwich around this time, but duty took me here, Liam answered. He looked around to see other people coming in. Emil, why you little white folk in here? A man asked. Oh, I'm here on official business. Do any of you know anything about the disappearance of his daughter? Liam replied. The place went silent. No one made a sound. The people looked at each other and soon, one man stepped forward. Well, I do remember one thing. I was doing some yard work with my parents and I remember when I was getting some water from the hose in the back of the house. There's a road there and one in the front. When I was done, I had heard an ear-piercing scream. After I dropped the bucket, I saw the truck, which is where you got the description from. I managed to get a single photo before the truck sped off. After that, I called the police, but said it was nothing, the man said. Well, that can do some good, Liam added. He left after finishing his food, and he soon went to the Antonio's house. After knocking in the door, a short Italian man came to it. What can I do for you? He asked. Is Anthony home? Liam asked. Yeah, here he is. Boy, get your butt down here this freaking instant or you're going to see Mars. The man yelled. Yeah, Dad. Another man's voice said. He stumbled down the stairs. Oh, great. Another drunk cop. Get out of here. Anthony sighed. I'm only going to ask you some questions. Now, where were you when your sister was taken from this place? Liam had asked. I don't know. Why don't you ask my fist? Anthony asked. Hey, the man his father spat. Fine, I'll answer. I was out with some friends just chilling at Vito's. All of a sudden, we got ourselves some tough guy who wanted to take us for some fun. We say no, and he insists that we do. 
After about several minutes of this crap, he snaps and he drives off and takes off towards my place. I think you don't want to go to my place, but that was a big mistake. As soon as I get back, my sister's gone. The truck looked the same as the one that I saw Vito's, as Pops had described. Anthony explained. And did either of you see the license plate? What was the last number of it? Liam asked. The one that I saw was a six. The father will had answered. Well, I saw a nine. Anthony answered. Thank you for your time. If you have anything more, please let me know, Liam said. As he left, Anthony flipped up his middle finger. <laughs> Trash, he shouted. Liam just shrugged his head. He drove home to continue his work in his office. As he turned left, right and then left, out of the street near his, he noticed something from the corner of his eye. He pulled over and saw a truck battered and in a ditch behind several trees. How in the world did I miss this? He asked himself. He called Emil to tell him of the truck's location. I'll be there in the morning, it's late. Maybe this can lead to my daughter. God, I hope so, he said. The next morning, Emil arrived and saw the truck. My God, he said. Will and Anthony were soon called and Anthony soon was flooded with that night. The man from the restaurant was soon called and was brought before the truck. Both remembered it and correctly identified it as the truck that they saw. The only question is, who owns it or who stole it? Emil had said. I'll work on that now, Liam answered. Thank you. I owe my life to you, pal, Emil added. If I can ask for you if I need you, like Batman and Robin, Liam replied. He drove off to find out who owned that particular green truck. It would take him a great many weeks to find the one, though. Emil came home and decided to explore the woods behind his house. He took his shotgun and he ventured with his dog into the forest. As Emil readied his gun, his dog barked loudly and Emil left his gun in his spot. He ran over to the canines howling, tripping over twigs and fallen branches and other things on the Texas forest floor. Oh, what are you barking at? What is... Jesus Christ... Emil shouted. What is it, hon? His wife Susan had asked. Uh, come see this, he answered. Susan wept and screamed as soon as she saw the bodies in the trees. The police took what they found back to the autopsy room. And there, they were identified as Emil's long-lost daughter, Francine, and Will's daughter, Viviana. Both bodies showed no signs of anything else, but... It was concluded they were both killed by blunt forays. They appeared to have been placed there, so the location of the killings were unknown. Liam was called and he knew this was the work of a madman. Liam soon arrived at Emil's house. He barged past him with a force like that of a train hitting an elephant. He arrived in the woods and he saw the tree, which the two bodies were found in. There were still stains on the bark of the tree. Liam put his fingers on the bark, the red seeping onto his fingers. Jesus, he said. Whoever the heck did this is a monster, and I want their dang head on a spike. Emil shouted. The police looked at Liam, wanting him to think of something. Analyze this. I'm going to a car dealership. One that sells these, he said. He looked inside the truck for anything useful. 
There was next to nothing except for some receipts, a knife, a 22 caliber, and another paper that had the faint words barely reading, Fabio's Garage. Or that's what he thought he saw on the paper. Liam drove to Fabio's Garage. He exited his blue 1965 Ford Mustang and approached the owner named Fabio. How can I help you today? Fabio asked. Do you perhaps know of somebody who bought a green 1963 Chevy pickup truck? He asked. Sorry, I've had several people buy the same truck. Be a little more specific, okay? Fabio replied. Liam held up the license plate, which he secretly took from the back, since the front was buried in dirt. Hmm, I believe that was given to Andre Hopkins. Never thought that he would be caught in all of this. Fabio added, Sorry for disturbing you. I know this is a lot, Liam said. He left to go find Andre. Andre lived in a rundown part of the city. Liam knocked on the door. Please, open up, Andre. I just want to talk, he said knocking on the door. No answer. Liam knocked again. Open the door, Liam shouted. Screw off, a voice shouted back. Andre, I just want to talk, Liam said. A fourth amendment, the voice replied. Andre, now we can do this the easy way or the hard way, Liam shouted. Suddenly, a large, overweight young man came to the door. His clothes were slightly tattered and covered in a red liquid. What do you want? He asked. Andre, I just want to talk. Where were you when Emil Power's daughter and William Antonio's daughter were kidnapped and killed? Liam asked. I was driving around after drinking. I later picked up some folks and brought them to the forest for some bird watching. Andre had answered. Who were the people you picked up and what was the forest like? Liam had asked. How young kids, both girls had a fun time. Screamed on the way there, they were so happy. Andre answered. Man, what were their names? Liam asked. Oh, some Italian name and a girl named Francine. Andre guessed. Did you put them in the tree? Liam asked. Only for the bird watching. They wouldn't shut up about going home, so I beat them. Might have killed them. Andre answered. Can I come in? Liam asked. Sure, Andre said. Liam entered the rundown apartment. There were beer bottles, magazines, and papers everywhere. He listened as Andre described his life. As Andre held up a gun, he pointed it at Liam. You know, I just realized. Your voice sounds funny. You ain't from around here, you're from out of the country. Folks like you deserve to go back to where they came from, Andre yelled. He fired the gun at Liam, but he missed. He then began to grab a beer bottle, but he was tackled by Liam. Get your hands off me, Andre shouted. Andre Hopkins, you're under arrest for the murders of Viviana Antonio and Francine Powers, along with attempting to assault a police detective, Liam said. He pushed the sloppily dressed man into the back of his car in handcuffs and he delivered him to the station where Mr. E spat at him. After several hours of interrogation, Andre was housed in the holding cell, where he would then be transferred to a jail. After he was brought to a jail, he was finally brought to trial nearly two years later. My father told me all about the trial, but I fell asleep since it was so long and boring. 
Andre, according to my father, had pleaded not guilty by insanity. And the judge and even the jury weren't having it. He was sentenced to 100 years for what he had done and given a death sentence for Viviana's. As he was let out, he shouted at Liam well in a meal, calling them all horrible things. For years, Andre sat on death row, awaiting to meet his maker. But just three hours before, he was scheduled to die by the chair. Something came in. The federal government had abolished the death penalty. Andre, along with the other death row inmates across the country, had their sentences commuted to life in prison. Andre, being a dangerous offender, was given no chance of parole for 100 years. Funny since that meant he wouldn't get out. Nope. Andre would get to experience the freedoms of other non-death row prisoners though, like shopping, seeing family, and other stuff. But one night, when my father was eating his dinner sandwich, he received word of something that would haunt him. Emil called him and said these words that made my father drop his sandwich, making it fall harder than Hannibal's elephants did when they fell trying to cross the mountains on their way to Rome. Andre Hopkins had just escaped, and prison officials let him go shopping for his good behavior, and he had just vanished like a ghost, Emil had said. Not by him being released from prison, but because he had escaped. Now he was on the run and lurking out in the shadows. Liam ran inside and panted, looking around his property in hopes to catch the deranged guy yet again. He had worked for weeks, even months on end, to get this psychopathic monster behind bars so he wouldn't harm another hair on another soul. But now he was out there possibly looking for him. Come on, where are ya? He had muttered to himself. When he was angry, no one would dare cross his path. If they did, they'd feel the wrath of God and his army coming down upon them, like a heavy rainfall during a monsoon. He huffed and went back into the house and decided to go back to work. While working on the case of Andre's disappearance, he would hear strange noises from inside the house. Thinking that it was his kids or pets, he shook it off. But what he would hear would make him shudder. Something, or rather, someone very familiar was inside the walls, waiting to strike him at the perfect moment. After several years of Andre still on the run, Liam began the hunt for him. It was 1978, and Andre had been in prison for just over 12 years. Liam started working on some unsolved cases from El Paso in Texas. Around this time, I was only 20 and I had moved away. Not knowing what my father did since I didn't read the local paper or see him too often, as he was always out working, even on holidays, like a kid in a candy store he never stopped. Liam was busy filling the cases so he would focus on other ones. Even frustrated, he was not willing to give in. Most of the squad, including Mystery, had given up, and said that Andre likely had died in the forest due to someone who got him in the forest. After hours of working, though, he went outside to get some sun. He didn't get much, and the doctor recommended he did so he wouldn't become like Dracula at only 56. He was upset at this, but soon realized that this would lead to more grisly findings. Emil would also step in to help. Mr. E, although not entirely for it, eventually let Emil help. He had had a change of heart since reading the works of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. 
As Liam had walked along his back porch, he smelled something foul like a dead animal. He went to investigate and to track the smell, and the odor led him to a patch of bushes. When Liam had opened it, he gasped. There lay the body of a young boy who looked to be around six or seven. He had bruises on his left and his right arm was missing. Liam had found it in a stream nearby. Emil shouted to him that he had found the remains of another one in the woods, albeit a different tree than where his daughter was found in. Liam called his police friends and they arrived within the hour. Liam was questioned and the houses were quickly searched. We'll have to go somewhere. A hotel, maybe? Liam had asked. Fine. I just hope that it's not for too long. His wife, Maeve, had answered. They packed some things for a hotel then and let the police do their work. Liam would go back and help and he would soon learn from the locals that more bodies had been found. Some were near the highway, others in the forest and others near other houses. Only one of the family members of one of the victims came forward to help give a description of the killer, now dubbed the Texas Killer. Liam would get his hands on the sketch and notice some odd details. The way that it was drawn, it was similar to that of Andre. He was out there and he needed to be caught before he struck again. He drove for hours and hours on end, not finding a dang sight of Andre. It was until he got home when he had heard the noise. The police had done their research in the house and they left. Liam had grabbed a knife from the kitchen, ready to strike. Who's there? He asked. Nothing. Just silence in the darkness in front of him. Another creak came from inside the house. Now you messing around, coward. Show yourself. He shouted. All of a sudden, with a loud thump, a man bolted at Liam, pounding him into the floor and they began to shoot at him. Andre, what the heck are you doing here? Liam asked. I might as well get my vengeance on you. Put me away and all. Got some balls for that. Maeve woke up and shrieked when she saw his face. Andre bolted at her, knocking her down and taking her out. Liam tried to fight back, but he was knocked in near unconsciousness. Andre soon dragged Maeve into the bedroom. He then forced himself upon her as she cried. Liam was next to passing out. With all of his remaining strength, he called Emil and Will and told him to come to the house and to also call the police. Emil did so. He arrived with a shotgun and Will with a butcher's knife. Get the heck away from her, Emil shouted. Andre ran past Emil and knocked the gun from his hands. He found one of Liam's pistols and grabbed it. He soon went to the neighbor's house and took their kid, and he came out with the gun aimed at his head. Oh, come on, bring me back to prison. Do it, do it, or this kid meets his maker, Andre shouted. Liam limped out, gun in hand. Don't shoot to kill, shoot to injure. You hear that? I want this guy alive. Liam ordered as the police had arrived. Please, sir, don't, the boy cried. It doesn't need to be like this, Andre. Let him go, Liam begged. What, so he can go back to his perfect family? No, I never had that chance. My father was a pig. No job and he drank. I wanted that old man gone. And I got my wish when he got the chair. I never had a happy life, so why should others? Andre asked, tears steaming up. Because not all families are perfect, 
No one is. Not even mine. Heck, I spend most of my time looking for you. I barely got to say hello to my own children. Liam had answered. Yeah, well that's still better than what God gave me. He screwed me over too many times. Now I repay the favor by doing the same to him. See how he likes it, Andre said. Liam lowered his pistol and placed his hands on his abs. Andre wasn't having it. He took out the boy. No, Emil shouted. Liam ran after Andre who fled into the woods. He fired and so did Andre. It wasn't until Andre either lost his breath or he tripped over a branch when he was caught. Andre heavily resisted and had to be subdued. And he eventually was caught and arrested. At the separate trials, he pled not guilty to all of the counts, but he eventually was charged with all the ones that had gone on. In the end, he had received nine death sentences, three life sentences, and four 20-year sentences, and on top of that, eight 10-year and six five-year sentences. He smiled at the small sentences which were announced first, but when it came to life and death, he wailed into tears. However, some of his death sentences were commuted to life, making his death sentences only five. He spent several years on death row denying his guilt. He would file for appeals several times, but would be denied every single one. The day came April in 1997, and my father asked me to come. I obliged being the decent son that I am. Andre's last meal was a cheeseburger, french fries, a coke, and a chocolate milkshake, just like my father had had when he was at a meal's. Why did you choose to eat that? Liam had asked. Oh, it's simple. Because you did. Andre answered, smiling an evil grin. Why of all people me? Did you not see me? I was there at Emile's when you were questioning. I was in the window. You had every chance to catch me but said no to it. So tell me, are you really the genius that you say you are? Because you would have noticed me. Andre answered, smiling his evil smile. Time to go, Hopkins, a guard said. Andre took his last shower and spoke with the priest. We weren't allowed to hear the words due to confidentiality because he told us not to. My father, myself, and the victim's families, Emil and some of Andre's family, and Will and Anthony all gathered in the waiting room. As the curtains were drawn, Andre lay on the gurney, flat and motionless, completely drained of all emotion. Andre Hopkins, you have been tried, convicted, and sentenced to death by the state of Texas for the murders of. He began to list the names of the victims. I couldn't remember most, only some. Like Taylor Pearl, Kendricks Henderson, and Faith Selvia. Do you have any last words? The priest asked. I know that what I did was right. God told me to screw off, so I told him to do the same. Come to think I am a sinner. I've caused a pain for everyone, and I deserve to suffer because of it. I hope that I can go in peace, knowing that I'm no better than a street rat, Andre said, crying and in conflicting tones. No one could really know if he was really sorry or if he was just faking it to get his death sentence commuted so that he could escape and do what he did before. As the process began, his eyes rolled back and he lay stone cold and not moving. 
and he was pronounced dead at 7.15pm. The warden said this was one of the fastest executions, as they usually take up to hours. But after that, my father and I hugged. We left that godforsaken prison and headed back to civilization. My father went on to live until 2017, at the old age of 96. Emil lived until he was 92 in 2019, and Will only made it until he was 87, as he died about a decade or so after Andre did. Anthony, Emil's son Henry and I live relatively close to one another and we're all friends. Since then, I haven't talked about Andre to anyone. I prefer to keep that memory locked away from when my kids get older. Maybe it's best if I never tell them. Thank you all so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you all really enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you stay safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.